This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. For Theo Wilson, the violent rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, was, quote, as predictable as gravity. He believes this in part because a while back, he went undercover into the online world of the so-called alt-right. First, he changed up his newsfeed, started reading Breitbart, Infowars. Then... I became Lucius 25, white supremacist lurker. And digitally, I began to infiltrate the infamous alt-right movement. Now, my doppelganger was Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter character. (laughs) A sci-fi hero who was once a Confederate soldier. And to think, like, years ago, I would have needed, like, acting training and, like, makeup and a fake ID. Now I could just lurk. But he didn't just lurk. He engaged, commented. His alter ego called out Barack Obama as a, quote, race baiter. And he threw out slurs online that he'd experienced as a black man. Since the deadly rally in Charlottesville, his July talk at TEDx Mile High has gone viral with more than 5 million views. It may have even surpassed that since I last looked, but Theo, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, my friend. Why were the events in Charlottesville as predictable as gravity, something you told Westward earlier this week? Because the forces that that propel racism in a real sense in this country, have never been uprooted. They say that history is cyclical. And because of that, uh, this was coming. And unfortunately, it manifested as uh, a death in one person. There were so many who had hoped going into the Obama administration that this would become a post-racial <laughs> society. Yeah, I, I think what I hear in your words there is that uh, that's not the case. Well, you know, I consider the fact that I am the first generation of my family born outside of legalized Jim Crow apartheid. My parents were born in the 40s. You must consider that slavery actually began in this country in really the 1550s and 1560s, meaning that by the time America was crystallized as a country in 1776, slavery was 200 years old. So when you compare the time that legal Jim Crow was been off the books compared to the time that um, we were in this apartheid system, it ain't been that long. You are an activist and a slam poet, and we first met you in 2015 at a barber shop in Northeast Denver, Mm -hmm. where you organize a series of community forums on big issues, including race. Uh, This is an event called Shop Talk Live. And your work means that you've posted videos in the past that garner nasty, racist <laughs> comments. Yeah, man. How, how was it to go undercover uh, and make those comments yourself? Well, it was interesting because immediately, and I talked about this exhilaration, I got reinforcement. And so I realized that if you have social reinforcement, no matter how wrong you are, you'll feel that you're right. And when I started kind of, uh, I, I suppose, mirroring the things that were thrown at me, I've realized that these people are, in fact, living in their own echo chamber and they're not getting the diversity of opinion uh, that would probably have them more critically think about their position. Of course, that is true of anyone on social media in some regards, the the bubbles that we are in. Yeah, these bubbles that we're in look like we're looking at the world. Uh, And in fact, because of that target marketing algorithm that feeds you products... Uh, that you like to buy, you also get more news that you like to hear. Was it empowering to be using the slurs that had been used against you, against me? Some, I, right. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't empowering, um, but it was interesting uh-huh. because you begin to see that, okay, so these people think that um, 
they they still think that we're subhuman. Like they're still uh, engaging in the idea that we are less than them. That African Americans are that, subhuman. That African, that's something yeah. you heard. Yeah, yeah, that's something I heard a whole lot. And the fact that they actually believe it. Uh, was probably the most shocking thing of this entire experience. But no, it wasn't in, empowering. In fact, it was a little bit disheartening. What else did you hear, see? Uh, what I heard was fear, my friend. I heard this fear of loss, um, that the changing demographics meant that as a race, quote unquote, white people would end up losing their benefits. And I said to myself, you know what? Uh, if, if, if you're losing, we don't feel like we're winning. Uh, you might want to examine that. Fear. It's interesting. I, I want to play a little bit more from yeah. the TED Talk because one place you found almost some compassion um, yeah. is in what it's like to be afraid. Yeah. Uh, in navigating around the so-called alt-right movement online, uh, you learned about the concept of white genocide. That diversity will be a force that will wipe them out. Now listen, I know what it is to fear for the fate of your people between crack AIDS, gang violence, mass incarceration, gentrification, police shootings. Black people have more than enough reasons to stay up at night. But how do you respond to this fear of white genocide? Well, first of all, genocide is an act committed aggressively to actually take life, land, and culture from people. And no one is in the military position to do that to white people. Nobody. There is no uh, race on earth that has the kind of firepower that the white nations have. So no one's committing genocide against them, first and foremost. Uh, that is a hyperbolic reaction that is unfortunately symptomatic of a fragility that is based in fear and guilt. And they need to acknowledge that because that is absurd. That's just <laughs> the truth. Uh, tell me what, what else you ran into online that perhaps led to some epiphanies. Um, what I realized was that the people on the so-called right um, are, th th this is not the party of Lincoln like it was, unfortunately. When you can have people calling themselves Republicans garnering Confederate flags, the very thing that Abraham Lincoln uh, ultimately sacrificed his life to defeat, um, what you have is a wayward party in that sense that you would passively harbor. Let's look at what happens passively. And, and let me make, make, make yeah. it clear. This is not, you're saying, the entire Republican party, not but the no, element no, no, that no, you, no. Were, you were looking into online. When you passively enable this element to fester, it was only a matter of time before it birthed itself into the forefront. And the elements that make these Confederates be who they are, uh, or so-called neo-Confederates, uh, has not been uprooted, which is environmental learning of white supremacy. We haven't addressed that yet. Will you say more about that? Environmental learning? I'm not sure what you mean. Okay. What I'm talking about is that you learn how to make recipes from your mom. You learn uh, your worldview from the paradigm of your parents. And no integration, uh, no social, because integration was ultimately a social experiment, uh, making it legal for us to be among each other will uproot that environmental learning piece. So we haven't actually attached the uh, attacked the roots of why racism sprang up in a brand new generation of white kids. We had never uh, even seen a lynched body in public before. And yet so much of that remains. And you're saying it's because the root causes haven't been addressed. And it's very difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't suppose you have the answer to that, do you? Well, what it is is that um, one of the things that can be done institutionally is to tell the truth about what actually happened in history. Count the bodies. 
be sure that you tell about slavery not just being a, a, uh, a an economic means, but a means by which African bodies were subject to medical experiments and that uh, the cultural teaching of inferiority, the science of phrenology was considered cutting edge science at that time. Tell the whole truth. You may have the ability to uproot and counterbalance the environmental learning piece that makes racism spring up again. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with activist and slam poet Theo Wilson. He did a TEDx Mile High talk um, describing his foray into the online world of the so-called alt-right. Uh, he did this as, a, as an African-American, uh, assumed a, a different online personality, and this video since Charlottesville has really gone viral. And I, I think what's interesting is you didn't just have realizations about the alt-right, yeah. but about the left as well. Liberals have this wide acceptance for everybody except for those with honestly held conservative viewpoints. <laughs> Heaven forbid you love God, this country, and mean it, right? You also say the left's wholesale demonization of everything white and male mm-hmm. has spurred on the far right. Will, will you expound on that for me and, and how this foray into the, the online world opened your eyes, perhaps? Yes, sir. What happens to people is that... Um, when they get any kind of negative feedback for who they cannot help but being, uh, who, who they cannot help but be, uh, it creates a, a defensiveness. And if there is a historical basis, there is clearly, um, you know, if you take a look at who has been president for the last 200 years, there's clearly something that enables white maleness into power. But for those who don't feel like they have that type of experience, putting them in that category makes them defensive without context. And that's what happened to the left. And now this entire narrative of, no, this is the devil. This is always the evil person, the bad person. Um, really, in the same similar and screwed up way, is reductionist to the humanity of folks who fit that description, even if there might be a historical background behind it. So that reductionism of humanity, you're saying yeah. th- there's the potential for that on both sides in this debate. Oh, yes. And, and often the left has no idea that they're doing it because they feel so justified by uh, taking up for a history of people who have been downtrodden um, that they don't often see that that reductionism can be uh, a spur to the other side. Um, what do you say to the person who says, yeah, but aren't Nazis and Ku Klux Klan members as close to evil as you can get? Well, not all white men are Nazis and Ku Klux Klan members. Nor, nor was I. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and th- 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 that would just, would, that would be what I said in that instance. Uh-huh. Uh, meaning that ultimately, um, we are all together on this little spaceship <laughs> called planet Earth. And everybody's got something to contribute to the equation. I make sure that I give everybody that I meet the benefit of the doubt of their humanity before I go reducing folks. And that is something that I think we could be a little bit more careful about on this side. Huh. Bring me into an everyday conversation that might happen with someone who has different political views. How would that change how that conversation begins? This is a lot of what you do at Barbershop. Yeah, um, I got to make space for people. You just, if you really want things to change... Statistically speaking, uh, open debate in terms of a conflict style n- does not achieve the results it is intended most of the time. 
uh, rejecting people into correctness works for some, but statistically speaking, not all. I want to flip this around. How would you feel if members of the alt-right were pretending to be black in, say, a, a Black Lives Matter online circle? They have. Like, they, they've done this already, you know. How, um, how do you know that? Uh, they've been busted before. Uh, certain people in uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement are very computer savvy, and they've just simply unearthed some of these folks. Um, and it's, it's, it's just been something that actually is done more often than you would think. Is there an inherent dishonesty in it? Well, um, in, in, in terms of going undercover as, as somebody else, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's something that, of course, I'm not fairly representing myself because I'm acting like I'm a white person and I'm not. The issue, and a racist white person at that, the issue was is it was an experiment that I needed to see what was going on on the other side to make them so polarized and to cause such division. And so I never intended for all of this to happen. Like, it's so insane that this blew up like that. When I was doing it, I was just doing it. And I never thought I'd talk about it publicly. Yeah, and so National TED yeah, uh, picked seriously. up your TEDx Mile High talk <laughs> yeah, after man. Charlottesville. And as we said, it's been viewed more than 5 million times. Yeah. Um, there's feedback that comes at the bottom of the of the screen. Yeah. What feedback has given you the most pause? Well, it's interesting because there's a YouTube link and a Facebook link. The the, the YouTube link is about 20,000 and the Facebook link is the one that has over 5 million. Yeah. And with Facebook, you don't get the downvote section and the upvote section and YouTube you get that. So if you go to the YouTube link, there's lots of downvotes and when you read those comments, they are not as forgiving or friendly as the ones that you will find that's on the TED, uh, the actual TED Facebook page. Yeah, but what have you heard in the feedback? I've heard the same thing that I've always heard. It's the same, um, uh, somebody uh, likened me to an animal on there. You know, painful, but nothing new. Um, what you what you see there is that people, and I, I think that on the YouTube side of the internet, lots of the YouTube traffic happens to be uh, the folks who feel the way that the alt-right does. And you don't see that as much on the TED site. In a way, what you're saying is that this experiment, then uploaded as a video, mm-hmm. uh, garnered more of the kinds of comments, oh, yeah. racist comments, that, that <laughs> launched the whole endeavor in the first place, it sounds like you're saying. Yeah. Uh, Thea, thank you for being with us. Appreciate it. No problem. I appreciate your time. Theo Wilson is an activist and slam poet. He also created Shop Talk Live, a series of community conversations at a barber shop in Denver's Montbello neighborhood. You can see him this Sunday at the Unity Festival in Aurora. And there is a link to the TEDx Mile High Talk we've been discussing at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The grisly murder of a family in Aurora in 1984 was seared into Matthew Sullivan's memory. It was shocking. And it happened at a time in my life when I was kind of straddling the place between adulthood and childhood, eighth grade. And it was the first incident that really took me out of childhood. It terrified me. And it terrified my whole family. And it terrified all of our neighbors. And I think that anybody who was in Aurora or Denver at the time um, felt that shock and, and horror. 
The case remains unsolved, and it's partly what inspired Sullivan to write his new novel, Midnight at the Bright Ideas Bookstore. We spoke with him in July, and in that interview, he mentioned the Aurora police detective who works the case still today. He is Steve Connor, and this isn't the only thing on his plate. Aurora's one-man cold case division has more than 30 active investigations. And uh, Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you. In 1984, Bruce Bennett, his wife Deborah, and their seven-year-old daughter Melissa were bludgeoned to death in their home. The killer also attacked their other daughter, three-year-old Vanessa, who was severely wounded but survived. Why uh, has this been such a hard case to solve, do you think? I think the the most difficult aspect of it is... um, at the time and even now, <clears throat> focusing in on the randomness of that case and ultimately how it connected to one or maybe two other cases that were being uh, investigated around the same time. So it might be connected to other crimes, but the randomness, you say, makes it difficult. What do you mean? That it is, it's definitely connected to one other case, okay. possibly two, um, we believe two. Um, it was just um, kind of a, a shock to... Um, not only the the neighborhood, but the police department is something that this intense, this bizarre could have occurred at that time. Um, it's a little more routine now if you think about it, but um, the, the mother of, of Bruce coming to the house and discovering the carnage that's inside her son's home um, and then calling us and we have to walk through that and then determine uh, what occurred. You, I think, were a beat cop at the time that it occurred, correct? That's correct. And were you on the case at all, or is it just that you remember it as being part of the forest? The only aspect of the case I was involved in was uh, the security of the crime scene. We maintained that crime scene for uh, our crime scene investigators to uh, go through the evidence, sift through the evidence that was there. So we had one to two officers on the, the premise during the time they were doing that. All right. And so you were absolutely aware of it at the time of the crime. But it it sounds like there was no rhyme or reason to why this family was chosen uh, or perhaps the other victims. Is is that what I'm hearing? That's that's correct. Yes. Mm -hmm. So having a a book published about a case you're working on, uh, and it's a novel based on, on the murder, does that help these kinds of, of cold case efforts bringing in publicity or what? Um, I understand in speaking to the author that it was loosely based on the events that occurred back yeah. then. Um, I haven't read the book, so I'm not familiar with the content, but he had called me and I think we emailed back and forth uh, regarding some of the general details that he wanted to incorporate into into his book. And do you think that it might help? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the reader base is on something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I know every time there's some type of media exposure to this particular case, we Occasionally get calls, sometimes we get none, but depending on what's released or revealed, we could get 40, 50 phone calls. Does this case stand out among the cold cases that you're investigating for Uh, any particular reason? It stands out primarily because it's one of the oldest. I think it's uh, one of the top three oldest cases that I'm looking into. Um, That, the brutality of the case, the apparent, like I said, randomness of the case, and the number of people that were killed during this episode. I gather, though, that you investigated whether it could be a family member or a a friend of the family that committed this. I think you've interviewed like 500 people. 
Not me personally, but the case investigators, That's right. right. Yeah. These things go on for years and and not all of that takes place under your tutelage. But uh, I'm assuming the people closer to the family were also investigated. Correct. We, for the most part, work from the inside out. The closest would be the relatives and expand to friends and then acquaintances and then maybe uh, prior employees that, you know, would have some type of relationship with the family. You've issued a John Doe arrest warrant in this Bennett case. Can you explain what that is? Um, actually, that was issued prior to uh, me getting involved in the case. Uh, it's based, been out for some time, in other words. Right. It was uh, Investigator Marv Brandt, who is a former detective with Aurora Police Department, and Detective Casey Williams were the ones that actually uh, collaborated to get that uh, warrant from the Rappel County DA's office. And what is it? It's... Uh, and a warrant based strictly on, um, I guess, the DNA content of uh, the suspect. and Plenty of which, I guess, was left at the scene? Sufficient enough to develop a profile and to use it to, um, you know, determine other aspects of uh, who this person may be. Um, and it's just a series of numbers and letters in different areas that say this is the identifier for this DNA, and that's the warrant we have for it. Okay. So you issue, in other words, a warrant for DNA, but you haven't matched that to uh, anyone in any kind of database. You know, on, on TV, these, these things happen so immediately. There's DNA evidence. And then the person is tracked down. Uh, well, how, how come that doesn't happen in, in, in 60 minutes well, in, in the real world? In this particular case, the only match we got was with uh, the Patricia Smith case in, in Lakewood. Unless the suspect's DNA is in the database, it will not spew out or spit out a, 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 an identification of that person. This was a flight attendant, I think, who was murdered. No, the flight attendant was beaten, left for dead, but she she survived. Okay, but but that's that's the case uh, you're saying is associated with it. No, Patricia Smith, she was killed out in Lakewood. Um, that's the case that's associated forensically with the Bennett case. My apologies. Uh, about a year ago, there was a new invention in DNA imaging that became available, and the department issued a composite of what the killer may have looked like thirty years ago, and what. He may look like now. Uh, you can see those composites at cprnews.org. And at the time, you thought that that might be a breakthrough in the case. Well, I was kind of hoping it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, felt, based upon what the FBI profile provided to us and the uh, the demographics of Aurora during 1984, that the suspect was probably a white male. Um, this confirmed that along with give us, giving us a general image of what this person could have looked like. You really have to take into consideration, you know, lifestyle, whether the guy's, you know, stocky build, um, slender build, if he's got, um, I don't know, acne or something like They can't determine that. So right. this gives you a general composite. A very general composite. Correct. But that did not really knock anything loose. Um, got a lot of phone calls, but no, it didn't generate any additional information. Mm-hmm. How often is a cold case solved, would you say? Um, I don't know that you can put a, a time limit on it um, or, a, you know, Percentage quantify or the, yes, the, the success rate. Um, w- when they're solved, why is it? Um, it's usually, for me, it's been um, basically a forensic connection between the suspect and the crime scene. 
Um, someone may provide additional information related to what they know or what they've heard, and then off of that, being able to focus in on a specific individual. But generally, it's the the forensic connection. How much hope do you have that the Bennett case would be solved? Oh, I have lots of hope. Um, personally, I believe, based upon as long as it's been since a uh, similar crime or series of crimes have occurred, that um, you know, he's. I, I believe he's no longer alive. I mean, someone gets dispute that. You believe uh, that the killer has died. Correct. What leads you to believe that? Um, you don't. You don't just wake up one morning and say, decide that you know today I'm going to commit a spree murder or mass murder. Um, you kind of work your way into something like that. This guy was probably involved in some criminal activity prior to this um, this spree that occurred during a couple of weeks in January 1984, and then it stopped. We've run. Um, the profile, basically the criminal profile through um, FBI, who runs the VICAP system and said, connect us to any similar offense that, you know, could be related to this and they haven't been able to do it. VICAP is a database of... Right. It's uh, basically a, a an MO, a modus operandi uh, database where it's we feed them information related to our uh, crime and they try to match it to a similar crime. Ah, to see if there are other crimes that match that pattern. Correct. How unusual is it that for uh, a police department of Aurora's size, there's just one person dedicated solely to cold cases? We used to have two, but there are resource allocation issues and, you know, the manpower and funding and all that, the finances. I don't don't get involved in this, so I don't know. All (laughs) I know is they move people around and... We lost a detective about uh, two years ago. And uh, do your colleagues in other police departments of Aurora's size have more support, or is this pretty typical? Um, I know Arapahoe County has two, um, and there are, I think it's fairly typical. I know Denver has quite a few more, uh, but I think most departments are uh, resource and case-driven. So depending on the, the volume of officers they have available and the number of cases they need investigated, they shift the resources to accommodate them. Yeah, and potentially shift those to more recent crimes or someone where they may believe the person is at large. I, I want to pick up on something that you said. You always have hope when I asked you about whether you think that the, the Bennett case might be solved. Um, do you have to have a lot of hope to do this kind of cold case work? I think you do. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're, uh, you know, beating your hand against the wall. It's like uh, you look at the case and the way I start is how much evidence do I have and how much of the evidence has not been processed. Um, then there, how many, you go from there and how many people or witnesses are still available, still around, go contact them. So there's always, and then of course, reviewing the case, there's always the hope that maybe the original detective missed something. Uh, to your work beyond the Bennett case, I understand you recently filed charges in a homicide case from 95. You also have another five cases currently in the district attorney's office from between 95 and 2012. Uh, it, it sounds like there's a lot to juggle and to know when to pick up a certain case, when to put another one down. Exactly. And um, and it's based upon, I, I have my own, I guess, my own process, the way I do it. Um, but on one of those cases, it was... Uh, an alert from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. They had a DNA hit um, on a recent arrest. And then from there, it's I do the follow-up. 
the information's there. I file it with the DA's office. These things which drag on for years can change in a day. They can change in a moment. Correct. Thank you for being with us. Sure. Detective Steve Connor is the cold case officer at the Aurora Police Department. We talked about some of his cases, most notably the 1984 murder of a family in their home. That case inspired a new novel, which you can learn more about at CPRnews.org. Two young entrepreneurs in Denver say they were motivated to start their company by attacks on women in their families. They've invented a product that alerts loved ones when you need help. One of the inventors of Revelar, Andrea Perdomo, is with me. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell me more about the attack that motivated you. Yeah, um, so Jackie was, you know, the one that initially had the inspiration for Revelar. This is your business partner, Jackie yes, Ross. Yes, Um, But for me personally, uh, I actually moved from Columbia to the U.S. about 20 years ago. Um, and it was all for safety and security reasons. So my grandmother was actually kidnapped for eight months. Um, she's good now, but we went a whole month without knowing where she was or what happened. Um, and so, you know, that was a big inspiration for us is how can we create what we called at the time a magic button that you could press just to let your friends and family know where you are and that you need help and something happened. Mm. Yeah, that must have been really hard to not know where she was for a month. Yeah, a whole month. Which was crazy. So your co-founder, Jacqueline Ross, has a sister who I understand was attacked twice before she even turned 17. Uh, what would the Revelar have done for her, you know, potentially for your grandmother? Yeah, totally. So the, the way Revelar works is um, it's a small button and it's separated from your phone for a reason. Um, and what it does is at the touch of a button, it'll send your preset contacts, your exact location, and what kind of alert it is. Um, so we have a check-in that's just a one-click, a three or more presses is a red alert, so like full-blown emergency, and then we have the middle ground, which is yellow. Um, so for, for Jackie's sister in both situations, she was a mile away from home, um, couldn't reach her phone in both cases and, and would have probably escalated the situation. And so had she had Revelar in that moment, her friends and family, and particularly Jackie, would have known that something something happened. Um, it, so it, it sounds like the discretion of the button yes, is, is part important. of its strength as yes. opposed to the overt act of reaching for a phone. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you were to take out your phone right now, it'd probably take you at least 15 seconds to open it, unlock it you know, call whoever that is. So it's a time thing as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and in a case of an emergency, you usually do three things. You flight, fright, fight or freeze. Um, and in most of those cases, you know, being able to have a button that's easily accessible is just a much quicker way to get help. And that uh, kind of middle alert, um, your business partner has said, is, a, is almost a safe way to cry wolf. Yeah. So what we, um, that was really inspired by us talking to hundreds of survivors of both domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, and they all kept saying the same thing over and over again, which was, I didn't want to be rude. I knew something felt wrong. My instincts were, were screaming. Um, and so that was really the inspiration for that yellow alert is 
being able to trust your instincts and be proactive about your safety. So with two clicks, you can set off that yellow alert. It lets your contacts know you're uncomfortable or you might need them to to call you, et cetera. Um, and, we, and that's just a really great way to break that moment. And take me to the recipient side so they get some sort of alert on their phone. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and so it- they get a text message or email or both um, with a click, a, a link that they can click. And it shows them what alert level it is, a custom message from the user saying, you know, because everybody's very different is what we've learned. Um, and it also has their location and it continues to update until the user cancels that alert. Yeah, the location sounds critical in yeah. this case. Uh, your product is is now for sale through Amazon. It's at Target stores, other national chains. Have you had anyone tell you about using a red alert if it perhaps saved them from a violent situation? Um, so we, we've had a lot of use cases and a lot of stories. Um, as you can imagine, most of them definitely want to stay anonymous. But we've had a lot of people, and particularly recently, start using Revelar for health reasons. So um, whether it's mental or physical disabilities, um, let's say you've fallen out of a wheelchair and, and you live alone, um, situations like that. And we've had, you know like thousands, thousands of alerts already activated um, around the world. So we've seen Revelars activated in over 100 countries as well. And I understand that uh, some domestic violence victims as well have made use of it. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, we've partnered with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, and one of the the part one of our missions is to be able to to donate units to people in need. Um, so over the last year, we've donated units to domestic violence shelters because um, eleven thousand women get turned on from shelters a day, and it provides them a way to at least call for help if it, if something happens. So you invented the button that you wish your family had had uh, around that kidnapping, and and it can be on a keychain and it can be attached to clothing. And as you said, a lot of people use this who have uh, illnesses. Uh, that includes Vanessa Kirk. She's in the San Francisco area. She has juvenile diabetes. And she told us that she had an incident at home before she got Revolar uh, when she realized that she needed help, but she couldn't get it. And she says the device has changed things for her family. Like I knew I needed help and I knew I needed someone. The best I could do was call 911, which for most people, sure, that works great. But when all of a sudden you realize you can't talk or enunciate anymore... <laughs> makes it a little difficult. And the relief it gives my parents knowing that like, if I need help, I just have to push this button and they're notified and they can call 911 and explain to them like, hey, this is where she is. This is her situation. How is this different from, I think of like uh, the life alert, I think it's called that I used to see television ads for, for, for older people, you know, I've fallen and I can't get up kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so we, a lot of times joke that we're kind of a a modern version of that. Um, so a lot of times with life alert, you are constrained to your home. Um, and it, it only, like I said, has the, the alert level that's like red, like full emergency. Um, So the way that we differentiate ourselves is it's a button that you can take on the go. It's not a 24-7 tracker. We also have no monthly fees. Um, so oh, because this is not operators standing by. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's a much more affordable way um, to, to get help and just have that peace of mind. You do have a competition in this market from other companies. Uh, there are for instance, a, a bracelet that alerts loved ones or can call 911, charms that send alerts, a clip-on button that can be pressed. It sounds like a bit like a, a crowded field here. But I want to ask about the idea that Revelar doesn't contact the police directly, right? Is that 
a good idea. In other words, you're, you're then adding an intermediary in a situation where police might need to be involved very quickly. Yeah, no, um, it's definitely an ask that we've we've are currently trying to address. Um, but the inspiration, again, for, for Revel R in the first place was really to be able to contact the people that you love most and let them know. Um, and again, going back to the conversations we had with survivors, a lot of them in several of those instances didn't want to report. So we, we've kind of that seen... That they felt in a way that the 911 call was a... Uh, a barrier or something that they might be afraid to do. Yeah. That there was no middle ground. Right. And so what we've learned from the last year, over a little bit over a year that we've been in the market and talking to people is it's very split. Some people do want that option and other people don't want it at all. Um, and so what we're working on is hopefully um, in, the next, in the next six months or so, be able to launch an option. So if that is an option that you want, um, that will probably consist of a monthly fee. Um, but if that's something that you as a user really wants for that red alert or, alert or any of those other alerts, um, we'll be able to provide you that. So this has been a big year for Revelar. As I said, you were added to Target stores. Uh, you put out a second product that adds features like a locator to help you find your keys if you attach Revelar to your keychain. And you hired a new CEO, Brian Thomas, who led Otterbox, uh, the Fort Collins company that makes phone cases, among other things. Uh, how hard has it been to give up running the company yourselves? Um, I mean, it's definitely been a transition, but I and Jackie probably, we've talked about this a lot, feel the same way. It's one of the best decisions we've ever made. Um, so it's both, you know, very, I've I've said it's very selfish and selfless um, because we ultimately, Revelar has to exist and Revelar has to grow exponentially. And so what better way to make that happen than to bring Brian, who has successfully grown a company like Otterbox, um, to help us grow as quickly as we need to. Um, And then it's selfish because, you know, Jackie and I have always had multiple hats. And so for the first time in four years, we can focus on the things that we're both really, really good at. I don't have to do 10,000 things. Exactly. Uh, The product was created by two women, of course. I understand actually that a lot of your customers are women, many of them who are runners. Um, Did you hesitate to turn management over the company to a man? Um, You know, it's funny. I get that question a lot. Um, n- not at all. <laughs> it's actually, you know, our team today is, is 50-50. We have 50% men, 15% women. Um, and it's, it's really, really great. One of the, the best parts about that is the diversity that it creates and the different perspectives that it creates. Um, and we've always wanted to create a product that was gender neutral, and it's great to have his, his perception on everything. Too. I'll say that we invited Brian Thomas onto the show, but he declined the invitation. Andrea, thank you for being with us. No, thank you. This was great. Andrea Perdomo co-founded Revelar with Jacqueline Ross. The Denver company makes a small device that notifies loved ones when you're in trouble. And Revelar recently hired a new CEO. Some people love Colorado so much they get state-specific tattoos. The other day, we introduced you to Kate Kirkwood of Denver, who grew up going to Lakeside Amusement Park and has a tattoo on her arm of the park's very recognizable Tower of Jewels. It's just a part of Denver history that I love, and I I like the old Denver, and there's certainly 
good, cool things that are changing about the city, but there's this retro griminess that we're losing. Well, we wanted to know if there are other people with Colorado tattoos. The answer is yes, and let's hear from some of them in our feedback segment, Loud and Clear. Kaylee DeLeon of Brighton has a small black and white tattoo of the I-70 symbol. I'm constantly stuck on I-70, so now it's stuck on me. She works for an oil distributor, so the highway looms large in her life. Meanwhile, Bree Davies, who was born and raised in Denver, has a tattoo of a woman crying into a phone saying, Denver, are you still there? Davies says it's a commentary on how fast the city is changing, an issue she took on when she wrote a weekly column for Westward, and an issue she still grapples with. While my column initially sort of began as anti-transplant, I realized that that was a really counterproductive thought process because growth is inevitable at this point and embracing the people that are moving here by showing them like, hey, I know you read this listicle of top 10 reasons that Denver's rad, but those were sort of surface things. Here are top 10 reasons I think Denver's amazing so that you know that the city that you moved to did have an identity before you got here. One tattoo can say so much. Then there's Christine Hartlob of Littleton. On Instagram, she posted a picture of her tattoo, an outline of Mount Bierstad, and there's a date below it when she hiked the 14er with some friends. One of those friends died a little over a year after that from cancer, and she was diagnosed with cancer pretty quickly after we had hiked Mount Bierstadt. So it was kind of like the last time that we had a really um, great friend outing. So I got that tattoo to kind of memorialize that friend and the kind of spirit that she had. You can see these tattoos and many others folks sent in on the CPR News Instagram. So there you go, the answer to our question, are there more Colorado tattoos? Now, we'll answer one of your questions. It came after a conversation about affordable housing. In North Denver, neighbors want to create a community land trust. The idea is to buy property in Globeville and Elyria, Swansea, and keep housing costs artificially low to prevent people from being squeezed out. Anytime a home turns over, owners would agree to forego market price. Well, Garland Campbell of Longmont wondered if these residents pay lower property taxes. And if so, how is that fair if they use city services? Garland, we got back in touch with our guest, Beth Source, who helps set up land trusts. Indeed, she says the taxes are lower, but... Because of the resale restricted nature of their homes, we don't believe it's fair that they get taxed on the full market value of their home because they're never going to be able to tap into that full market value. And so that's kind of the philosophical goal. But then also just on a practical level in hot markets with rapidly escalating home values, the taxes alone could make a home unaffordable, kind of undermining the whole goal of the community land trust. Keep your questions, comments, and story ideas coming. Find all the ways to connect with us at cprnews.org slash connect. A lot of kids don't eat fruit every day, and the numbers are even worse for vegetables. It's just one reason obesity rates are so high in this country. But a Colorado nutrition program is fighting that trend, starting with young kids. Here's CPR health reporter John Daly. Visit a preschool class, take out your recording gear, and things get interesting fast. At my friend Anastasia's I'm four. In a typical class this age, you're likely to already see signs of one of Colorado's biggest health challenges, obesity. 
On average, one in five Colorado children ages two to four are obese. But in this lunchroom, it's really... I like green beans. The kids seem to already understand what's good for them. We're eating apples. Even I have soy milk. Soy milk? Because I'm lactose tolerant. (laughs) Today, they're eating a vegetable soup prepared fresh in the kitchen. We always have lentil soup. Nancy Fox Clement directs the number one child enrichment center in Greeley. She says not long ago, the state health department came to her with a proposal. Redo her menu with a big focus on fresh. And we have fresh fruits and vegetables every day, every meal. And the kids have adapted. At first it was a little rough, but then they got it. The program is called CHOP, Cooking Up Healthy Options with Plants. It provides nutrition assistance and education to child and adult care programs serving low-income Coloradans. It started here in Greeley and in Pueblo, two towns with high child obesity rates. And a key element is getting the kids digging in the dirt. As they scramble out of the lunchroom, several five-year-old girls race to a series of raised garden beds by the playground. The kids raised these vegetables themselves from seeds. They planted them, they watered them, now they're harvesting them. Riley, Anastasia, and Analia all crowd around to explain about some things that are good to eat. Um, cucumbers, apples, broccoli, since broccoli also has vitamin C in it. Riley says eating these things will make you... Brittany Martins is a nutrition educator with the program. The money comes from a half-million-dollar USDA grant. Martin says elementary, middle, and high schools have benefited from farm-to-school efforts. What's new here is getting to the kids even younger in preschool. We're really frontiering in Colorado the first farm-to-preschool program because we're wanting to hit these children at age 3 to 5. They're going to be pros when they go to elementary school. They're going to be teaching them about spinach. Mother Lindsay Minnie has a pair of children at this center. She says she's seeing an impact from the program at home. Her kids demand more fruits and vegetables and fewer snacks. It definitely helps because that's what they want. So I don't argue, I don't fight with them. So it's more about focusing on what they like, and daycares definitely help that a lot. Childhood obesity is now not only a national epidemic, it ranks as the number one health concern for parents. Mom Lindsay Minnie says the gardening has been a big hit with her kids, She says she's living in an apartment, but hopes that they can have their own garden someday. This is their first time gardening, so I think it's been pretty fun for them. So it's something to do in the future when I'm not in an apartment. The kids in the preschool appear to be taking to the program. Jennifer Delaporte manages the health department's early childhood obesity prevention program. She says it makes a big difference to avoid bad habits early. If you're overweight... As a five-year-old, there's a good chance that you'll be an overweight adult. And all that extra weight is linked to later-life risks like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and some cancers. That's why the state health department is putting on a full-court press to combat childhood obesity. It's not just the gardening push. They're educating pregnant moms and talking about the dangers of sugary drinks. Delaporte says weight loss for younger children is an indicator of early success. That's a bright spot. I mean, I think Colorado's a great place to do this kind of work because we have people that are interested in healthy living, right? I got tomatoes! Um, healthy living clearly interests this group of five-year-old gardeners. Under a mass of green leaves, they've discovered two tiny tomatoes and a giant green cucumber. 
No one has to convince them these veggies are tasty and delicious. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Somebody else picked it. What is this? It's a it's a kiwi or a cucumber. A cucumber? What color is it? It's green. Green. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. 